This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Michael Weiss, host of Asia Tech Podcast on the Thailand startup ecosystem. We discuss the interesting startups and investors within the ecosystem and its interaction with China tech giants such as Tencent and Alibaba entering the Thai market. Hi, Michael. Hi, Bernard. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Where are you based in? So I am in Bangkok. I've been living in Bangkok for almost six years. So have you been to the other parts of Thailand, say, for example, Phuket, Pattaya? I have. I should back up and tell you. So my first time in Thailand was in 1998, and I drove from Bangkok to Chiang Rai. Yeah, it's pretty amazing over like a three or four day period of time. So I've been kind of all over Thailand over the past, it's almost, what is that, 20 years now? Is that right? Seven, 18, 19 years, yeah. That's pretty interesting. And we are talking to Michael Waits founding partner of Metalik and host of the Asia Tech Podcast, which I have recently started listening. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for coming on the show. And I want to start to get you to know you better. How do you start your career? So how did I start my career? My career really started when I was walking through the hallway of Connecticut College, and I noticed a bunch of students studying Japanese. And I had originally thought when I went to college that I would study French, study government, and go to law school. And as soon as I saw you know, the Japanese characters, I said, I need to do this. Nobody else is doing it. And with back then, I mean, I'm a little bit older now than I'd like to be. But you know, 1983, 84, when I got to school, Japan was in an ascendancy. And it seemed to me to make sense to do something that was Asian-related. And that was the best way to do it. So I started studying Japanese. I did a homestay in Kyoto for a while study abroad. I came back and took a job at Morgan Stanley in New York. And then they sent me to Tokyo about two years later. And I stayed in Tokyo for almost 22 years working at Morgan Stanley, working at Goldman Sachs and Citigroup. That's kind of how I started. But in the midst of all of that, I was always really interested in technology. And that interest in tech kind of led me to venture capital sort of way back in 1998. And that's how I started this part of my career. So I've been doing this for a long time as well, actually. So how do you eventually move from Japan to Thailand and it's also within Asia as well? Right. So basically, we saw the writing on the wall for the end of the type of business that I was doing on the equity side of the business in Asia, right? Trading was becoming automated. Everything had been sort of algorithmized. And we just kind of thought it would make sense to move out of Tokyo. And because we had been traveling in Southeast Asia, I think, as I mentioned, since 1998, and probably had been in Thailand about 13 or 14 times, looked around Asia for the best place to live. And Thailand is kind of like the Goldilocks place, right? It's not too hard, not too easy, right in the middle. And everything you do here, you learn something, right? So the international school system was really good. My daughter attends NIST. She's been there, like I said, for almost six years. And instead of moving to Singapore, which is a super fabulous place, or moving to Hong Kong, which is where most of my experience had been from a business side, we decided to move here. And it turns out it was pretty prescient for us. And the reason why is because the Japanese have been the largest foreign direct investors in Thailand, probably for a century. And with my combination of finance background, trading background, investing background, speaking Japanese and understanding Japanese culture, 
it made sense for me to move to a place where being able to help Japanese investors and business builders made the most sense to me, right? So if you think about the area in Bangkok where I live, something like 25% of the rental turnover is Japanese expats. And that's just the perfect place for me to live. So eventually, what are you currently doing now with Metalik as the founding partner then? So we do a couple of things, right? We, As you mentioned, we run Asia Tech Podcast, but we'll get to that in a second. We invest in sort of seed stage startup companies, and we also advise those companies for raising capital as well. We've been doing that the entire time we've been here. It's probably a very interesting time because the Chinese companies are now extending their footprint into Southeast Asia. And I think Thailand is probably one of the outposts that these Chinese companies, for example, Alibaba and Tencent, are beginning to enroach into the space. Am I right to say that? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great insight. And actually, back in 2012, when we first started investing in companies, we really thought that the market was reaching an inflection point from a business building standpoint, right? So... Back then, there was really, you know, there was just Lazada and it was still small. And we started building a company called What's New as an adjunct to the Ardent Capital portfolio. So I'm a limited partner in the Ardent Capital business as well. It's really a venture builder. We looked around the market and tried to find market gaps. And the team that was doing that, right, so the Servunikun brothers, Tom, John, and Paul, were pioneers, basically, in the internet business creation space. And they literally found two market gaps. One was in the e-commerce space, right? And again, pretty well filled by one of their companies along with Lazada. And also the back-end logistics side, right? You cannot sell things to people online unless you have a warehouse, unless you can do SEO and SEM, and unless you can do the last mile delivery. That was the genesis of a company that we built called e-commerce, and we funded it as well. And now you look, you know, five or six years forward and like you said, big companies like Alibaba, Tencent are looking from China and saying, okay, we've kind of built a big infrastructure in China. What type of best practices can we bring into Southeast Asia? And as I mentioned earlier, into which country should we do it? Well, you know, Singapore is a great market, but there are only five and a half to six million people there. And there's not a lot of learnings there, no insult intended in the sense that it's, you know, everyone has a credit card, the logistics are fine, the infrastructure is, you know, top notch. Indonesia has 200 and something, 260, 270 million people in it, so it's really large. You know, Vietnam is still developing, Myanmar is on the cusp, and the Philippines is interesting too, but it's, you know, land away, so there's an ocean in between it and the rest of Southeast Asia. So the best place to really build and learn about these businesses is Thailand, and I think that's what some of these Chinese internet giants are realizing, is that investing in companies here is a great foothold into the rest of the region. Just before I come to the main subject of the day, I just want to ask you throughout your career journey, what are the interesting lessons you have learned? Oh my God. You know, we could talk about that for hours. So a few things, you know, one is always keep learning, right? The things you, the things you know are only a a small subset of the things you might want to know, right? Second is no one succeeds alone. What does that mean? It means that you may have a great idea, but having the right partners, whether they're financial partners, operational partners, or just idea partners, There's no way you can do anything on your own. And whether that means one company on its own or just one person on its own, no one succeeds on their own. The third thing is I never turned down a first meeting. And what does that mean? It means I don't know what you do and what you know. And if you are interested in meeting with me, I owe it to myself to sit down and talk to you and figure out where we can add value to each other. So if someone contacts me and I don't know them, I may be skeptical. 
but I'm always going to take that first meeting unless I know something about that person that's really negative. And even then, there may be something for me to learn from them, right? We come to the most interesting topic of the day, the Thailand startup ecosystem. Actually, I have been trying to look for someone to talk about this for a while. And you guys came along and I discovered that you guys are based in Bangkok. So I thought maybe I should just ask you immediately and say, can you tell me a little bit more of the Thailand startup ecosystem? So from an outsider coming in, how does one navigate the Thailand startup ecosystem from the outside? Yeah, I mean, it, it really depends on your personality, right? But the best way to do this, I think, in any particular location is just to try to go out and meet the most people that you possibly can, right? I mean, it's just like going out and doing a fundraising. It's all in the numbers in my mind, right? So meet as many people as humanly possible. Attend all the events. So in the old days, that was there was an Echelon in Thailand event. That was a great event. And there's TechSauce. There's Tech in Asia. And I think you should do that in the whole region too, not just in Thailand. And also visit the co-working spaces. So I was at the Hive. I kept an office at the Hive for a while. And one of the benefits of doing that was that I would get up out of my office and I'd just walk essentially the hallways up and down the floors and just meet people, walk into people's offices and say, what do you do? How do you do it? Why are you doing it here? By doing that, I've actually ended up meeting quite a few really fascinating people. And through them, I've been able to build a network of people that I find are really useful and really resourceful when I try to go and either do a fundraising or learn more about individual companies or try to get deal flow. I think it's really important. I think whether you're an investor or a company builder, your people skills actually end up being quite important. And your ability to meet people, I think, is, is, really, is really prominent. Given that Thailand has their local language, which is Thai, and for example, for someone like yourself, um, interacting with the locals, how do you find the startup ecosystem? Is it more embracing for people from the outside or is, is there like uh, two different groups of people actually working towards the same cause? So I think you ask a really interesting and quite controversial question. And I think if you go back to 2012, you'll find that the ecosystem was very inclusive. And I think what we've found over time is that the ecosystem is unfortunately bifurcating. And what that means is that as individual participants in the ecosystem try to consolidate their own power and influence, you're seeing what I consider to be a really unnecessary separation into you know, large but very distinctive cliques. And I think that over time, that's going to disappear because as I said earlier, and I'm very explicit about this, nobody succeeds alone. And I think that applies to groups as well. And that you can break off from a main group and try to go out and do things on your own. But the only thing that's going to make somebody grow and help companies grow is um, cooperation. And I think it's I think that's a really important thing to note, actually, because every time an ecosystem splinters into small groups, it's destructive. And actually, um, in my previous startup, I actually hired a whole team of Thai engineers. They are probably one of the best engineering talent in the Southeast Asia region. In fact, for those who do not know, Google's first hire in the region was actually an engineer who could actually translate their search engine to Thai. So is mastering that language is not that easy. But I want to get to the question of where are most of the startups aggregated in Thailand? Like, for example, is there a location, for example, where most of the startups are placed? You have Block 71 in Singapore, Gangnam in South Korea, or most of the startup activity actually only happens in Bangkok? Does it also happen in the entire country, even from the 
places like Phuket or Pattaya. Right. So what we've seen over time is there's been an explosion of interest in the startup community. And while originally it was really just in Bangkok and in Chiang Mai, we've seen that move, as you said, to sort of unexpected places. And I think Pattaya is one of those places. People like to live by the ocean. They like to have a little bit of diversity. And there's a growing and sort of vibrant community in Pattaya, but also in Phuket as well. So in the same way that you see in Indonesia, a great startup ecosystem developing in Bali, because it's just a place that people want to live, you're seeing the same thing in Phuket. And just like Bali, in Phuket, there are great international schools and a great school system there as well. So if you're a foreigner wanting to do a startup, you can go to Phuket and have great schooling for your children if you have children as well. So you're not limited just to Bangkok. And what we see in, in Bangkok as well, and I think Chiang Mai is probably the same way, is you see a heavy concentration around co-working spaces. So whether that's Igloo or Hubba or Launchpad or The Hive or Glow, I mean, Bangkok is just rife with places to do co-working. And I think that the reason why, as I said earlier, is no one succeeds alone, right? So when the startups all congregate in one place, they get to benefit from learning from other people, whether they've succeeded or failed, they get to learn why those things have occurred. And there's a super benefit to all of those participants to be clustered in a few places. Are there any like streets or, you know, places where, you know, these startups are actually in? Yeah, I mean, so Igloo's on Soy 11, right? I mean, the Hive is on Sukhumut Soy 49, Hub is in Ekamai. So yeah, and, you know, Launchpad is on Tanom Pan right, in Satiwan Tower. And I think, you know, you are seeing clusters around certain locations, but it's not like Singapore. And actually, this to me, it goes both ways, right? So in Singapore, you have heavy government emphasis, right? And big programs sponsored by the government, where the NRF, I mean, and the and the IDA and the MDA sort of, you know, sponsor startups and stuff. And then you have Block 71 kind of grow organically in one spot. In Thailand, you're seeing it more spread out and, and more fragmented. And I think to a certain extent, that's good because you have different pockets and different places where things get built. And you are seeing a lot of venture building companies here, but they all sort of congregate in, like I said, in a few places. And I think that's really good. So there's not like one street, there's not like a Silicon Valley or a Silicon Alley like there is in the United States. And it's not like in Singapore where it's clustered around block 71, but it's like five or six places in town. And I think that's actually quite beneficial. And I think part of the reason why is just because of the way the city itself is organized, but also because Bangkok is a very big place with a very large population. And people tend to cluster and work around where they want to live. And there are different sort of communities and places where people want to live. And I think that's uh, manifested itself in some of those clusters. So what are the key verticals that most Thailand startups excel in? I'm, I hear you mentioned just now about logistics with e-commerce. Are there any interesting verticals that they are actually pretty dominant in? Right. So ed tech, I think, is really important for, you know, education is actually something that's really important to Thailand. And with a super young population that's moving into multinational corporations, but also moving into large companies as well, you're seeing people want to get educated and they're wa they're watching what's happening in the United States, right? So they're looking at companies like Udemy. They're looking at Khan Academy. They're looking at lynda.com, right, which was acquired by LinkedIn. And they're saying, how can we build things that are like that, but better for our region, right? So you see companies like that. So Skill Lane is a perfect example of a company like that. You also see med tech, right? So health tech companies that have been built here. And you may or may not know this, but one of the original health tech companies was built back in the early 2000s in association with Bumrungrad Hospital. And that company was actually acquired by Microsoft. But even companies like 
you know, medical departures is here. And so the med tech is going to be good because Thailand has one of the best healthcare systems, not just in the region, but in the world. And that means that as a place for medical tourism, there's probably no better place in the world for that than Thailand. And we see that manifesting itself offline. And now all that stuff is moving online as well. I mean, you mentioned, because I had mentioned earlier logistics, one of the things in a growing economy is that the logistics is one of the first things that has to be built out, particularly if you want to do online or e-commerce. And the reason why is because all of those things, whether it's warehousing or last mile delivery, has to be handled differently than it has been handled prior, right? So take a company, you know, take any of the big mall companies, whether it's the mall group or other companies like that, you're seeing that most of their experience on the logistics side comes from taking things from a port, you know, multiple pallets, putting them in a big truck and then taking them to a warehouse and then putting them in their department stores. But e-commerce is different, right? So that B2B business is interesting, but the B2C business is one to many. And that one to many expertise is now starting to get built out, right? Like you see in Singapore through the SingPost quantum business or Anchanto, you're seeing here through the e-commerce business. And and that is actually really important because facilitating the build out of e-commerce as a vertical is actually super important. And you're seeing, you know, that drive some consolidation in that business as well, because the people that can provide the best logistics then can help provide the best e-commerce solutions too. I thought the education tech part is actually pretty interesting because according to the Google Tomasic report, 70% of the population in Southeast Asia are actually below the age of 30. So there's actually a growing yeah, it's a, we actually podcasted about this about a month and a half ago now. We went through a bunch of cities in not just Thailand, but in the whole region. And you're talking about, like you said, some of the youngest population in the world, whether it's in you know Vietnam or Indonesia or in Thailand. And what it means is that the only way for people to succeed going forward in a, in societies that have ended up being slightly bifurcated between very wealthy and, and not so wealthy, right, where the GDP per capita gaps are large, is the only way to change that is by educating people. I want to know what are the interesting startups in Thailand from seed to unicorn? I know Omis because they have just done an ICO, very successful one, and they are actually funded by 500 startups. Are there any interesting ones that you can share with my audience? I mean, where should we start? I mean, there are so many companies here. Like we mentioned Skill Lane as well, I think is a great example of a company that has moved from seed stage into a second round and then a third round of investment. And I think that's a really great example. Omise, obviously, as you mentioned, is a great example as well of a company that was you know, funded by East Ventures. So Batara Eto and his team saw that company early and invested in that. So they've done a great job there. And I think what's happening, because the investment environment here is still nascent, I, I think you're still waiting to see some you know, gigantic companies grow. But you look at the, the old Moxie and what's new business, which have now grown into the Orami business here. You see a vertical business like that, a vertically integrated business like that on the e-commerce side growing as well. And I think the play basis business too, from a gamification standpoint, is one of the most successful businesses here. And I, I think you're going to see a whole bunch of businesses like that as well. So those would be some of the examples that I would give for companies like that. So whenever there are entrepreneurs, there will be investors. So who are the venture capitalists or angels that I need to know if I want to come to the Thailand startup ecosystem? So there are a bunch of investors here and also a bunch of corporate venture capitalists. But I think what you're seeing, again, is a still quite immature VC business in Thailand in particular. And I think a lot of the money that gets invested here gets invested by either corporate venture capitalists, right? So you see it coming out of like 
SCB through Digital Ventures and Paul Arc. And you also see some participation from 500 tuk-tuks, right? But a lot of the investors actually are based in Singapore. And I think you're, you're going to see, hopefully over time, more, as you say, like the only thing that's going to make and sustain a real ecosystem is having the investors be local. And I think it's a really important topic. So here's why. There is a decent amount of capital and actually a ton of capital in Thailand in general, but in Bangkok in particular. Very, very wealthy angels here. The only problem with the e ecosystem as it stands right now is that while there's a lot of capital, there's not a lot of risk capital. And what does that mean? And that means that most of the money is, is heavily concentrated. And it also means that that money has been built in traditional businesses, whether it's retail, offline retail, hotels, and food and beverage. What it means is that if you try to convince the scions of those families to invest their money in businesses that are non-core, they'll always go back and look at what the not guaranteed, but what the sort of expected returns are in their existing businesses. And when they do that analysis, sometimes it limits their ability to take risk, right? So if you look at the best ecosystems in the world, what you have is entrepreneurs investing in other entrepreneurs. And we're not at the stage yet where the first cycle of exits has taken place. And that's not just in Thailand, right? That's in all of Southeast Asia. So what you really need is another three or four years on where there have been a couple of exits Right, and that's really the story of Arden Capitals. That's the beginning of it, right? So Paul, John, and Tom built a business called Insogo. They sold that business. That's public information to Living Social back in 2011 or 2012. And then they, as a perfect example of what most entrepreneurs do, went out and started investing in other companies and investing in some of their new companies as well. And that's really the model for the way an ecosystem becomes self-sustaining. So regardless of the wealth that exists in any particular place, Barring the government giving incentives for those investments, what you see, what you're going to need to see is more entrepreneurs exit out and then go out and restart businesses, right? So PlayLab is another great example of this, right? So Jacob and his team and Thomas and, and that and those guys, right, they took a decent investment. They grew that business really nicely and they recently sold it to another startup company, right? I think that's public information as well. And what they'll do with those proceeds is they're likely going to go out and then restart companies and invest in other companies as well. That's how the ecosystem becomes sustainable. And what's going to need to happen is some of your sort of high net worth Thai individuals that are angel investing here are going to need to see an exit. And when they do see that exit, then they're going to take some of that money and reinvest it back in the ecosystem as well. So right now what they're doing is, and even some of the corporate VCs are doing this too, is. They're allocating their money, actually, and I don't love this, to be fair, but they're allocating some of their money to funds that are based in Singapore and hoping for returns, regional returns, right, region-wide, as opposed to country-wide. And what I'd like to see, actually, is more people taking risk inside this country, but we'll, we'll get there. I find it ironic because I talk to the venture capitalists in Singapore and they tell me that most of the action that they are looking at is not in Singapore, but actually in the outer regions of Southeast Asia. We talk about Thailand, Indonesia and Philippines. That's where most of the opportunities really are. They are, and that, but that, that's interesting. So again, because you have to think of the venture capital business, not just in Singapore, but in the entire region, right? It's a relatively new business here, so it's very nascent. If you just consider, let's say 2012 was really the beginning of the building of the sort of tech startup ecosystem in Southeast Asia, and then maybe the venture capital system as well, it's not even five years old, right? So if you think about VCs getting built in the United States, even if everything happens faster, let's just pick a time like 1975 in Silicon Valley, which is when Apple was founded. Now you're talking about it's 1980. It's just not 
people just aren't mature enough from an investment standpoint. And I think that's the risk you run is that a lot of the venture capital money sits in Singapore and is looking for investments outside its home country, right? And part of the problem is that because they because living in Singapore is very different than living in Ho Chi Minh, right? So how do you make a positive or how do you make a, a value judgment on what to invest when the place where you live is very different than the place in which you invest? And if you look at the very experienced venture capitalists in the United States and even in Europe, they'll say most of their best investments take place 100 miles from their house, right? And that's one of the reasons, another one of the reasons why I love living in Thailand is because we get to see if we live here, we get to exist in the environment in which we want to invest. And that, I believe, makes us much better investors, actually. Are there any local Thai angels that you may, that's also part of that ecosystem that you're from as well? Yeah, so like Chris Nemelung is like an incredibly successful businessman, but also a very subtle and yet great investor in the Thai startup ecosystem. And he's probably a person that not a lot of other people external to Thailand and to Bangkok have heard about. But he just like slowly but surely and quietly invests in a bunch of different companies and also mentors and helps people here. He's really um, incredible. Another guy, Tiris Boon Long, probably somebody else that you've never heard of. He does an incredible job of going out and finding companies in which to invest in at a seed stage and then helping them along as well. And he's also invested in some funds in the rest of the region that also go out and invest in startup and seed stage companies in Southeast Asia. And it's people like that that are really starting to have an impact because it's not just the money, right? Money's a commodity, but it's their business experience and their connectivity in the region that allows them to be super helpful when it comes to that seed stage investing. So what are the accelerators and incubators in Thailand typically of, of interest to entrepreneurs? Yeah, I mean, so from an accelerator and incubator standpoint, it's hard to say, right? So there's Santora Nakama, which is, you know, a, a business building venture that um, is run by foreigners, and that's on Tanampan. So it's actually in the same building that Launchpad is in. Again, Ardent Capital used to do that, but not so much anymore. And then the incubators, I mean, you can talk about True and Cube as well. But again, not a long track record for what's going on there. So those things are still getting built right now. And I think... There is a question, right, from an accelerator standpoint. You look at what happened to your f your most famous incubator and accelerator in Singapore, right? So JFDI, run by Hugh Mason, an incredible team down there. But the accelerator business is really hard to run because there's not a lot of profit in it, and the profits are years out, right, seven to ten years out. And unless you're running a large fund inside of that accelerator, right, so Y Combinator is a perfect example of this, and Launch, which is something run by Jason Calacanis in San Francisco as well, is similar. They can run incubation programs because they're running big funds on the side of it, right? So they incubate and then they invest themselves or they run syndicates that invest in them. That hasn't developed yet in the region, really. So you actually also take time, I guess in Hugh's case, I think they had the unfortunate problem of Singapore government inviting all the foreign successful incubators into Singapore. So it's a tough part to actually grow that into actually a bigger Southeast Asia entity. So coming back, what are the key events that foreign entrepreneurs and investors need to attend in Thailand? For example, I know TechSource, which is an online media site in Thailand has actually organized an event. I think E27 has actually organized previously the Echelon in Thailand as well. Yeah, and so so those are probably the two most important events. The government themselves actually sponsor events, which seems like almost every month. But there's an optimal size, I think, for an event in any country, and I don't think it's more than a couple of thousand people. And the reason why that is the case is that 
as I mentioned earlier, the people that you meet and the people to whom you speak are actually more important than money, which is a commodity, right? So your ability to meet people in a group of 15,000 people, right? Slush, which is going to happen in Singapore soon. And, and I love the guys that do Rise in Hong Kong. So I've spoken to Casey Lau, really an incredible team there. But I find that for me, at least, that really, really large tech events are kind of suboptimal for what, what our startup really wants to do. So the smaller the event or the more sort of um, unique the event is, is actually better for me. And I think, frankly, that syndicate organized events on a small scale where there are somewhere between 20 and 40 people are going to be much better. I mean, that's really where the outgrowth of a company like Uber happened, right? Ten people at dinner. Travis Kalanick comes over with the co-founder and they just sit around and talk about it. And I think that's the type of thing where startups are really going to benefit because that's where the investors and the angel investors are really going to get one-on-one exposure to them. So it's great to have Texas and E27 through their echelon arm. And even Tech in Asia used to do some stuff here. But I think it's actually better to have smaller events because I think they're more optimized for the types of things that both investors and founders want to accomplish. So recently, Tencent and Jingdong.com have been very active in Thailand. How is the startup ecosystem actually reacting to the Chinese companies entering into Thailand? It's a very good question. So I think people are happy, actually, right? Because the more people can learn and the more capital that comes into the region, the better off it is, right? And into the country, I mean, the better off it is. I don't think there's any... The one thing about an economy like Thailand in particular and in Southeast Asia in general is that it's growing. So it's not like it is in some other places where there's a fixed size of the pie and people are fighting over just an existing size. What's happening here is that there are so many market gaps that need to get filled. There's so much greenfield that anybody that comes in is really additive to the entire ecosystem and helps build it, right? So if it goes from 10 to 100, it just means there's, there are more places to play. And if it goes from 100 to 1,000, it just keeps getting bigger. And that's better for everybody, actually. So I don't think there's any sort of inherent fear or distaste for people coming in from the outside. I think it's very welcoming here. And, you know, frankly, Thailand itself has always been very welcoming to foreigners. And the government here is actually doing a really good job about allocating resources to make sure that those types of things happen. You see, recently, they just started a program to have sort of four-year startup and tech visas for people, just making it easier for foreigners to come into the country and stay in the country to help build the ecosystem. And I think that's really positive. And of course, with the China's One Bad One Road initiative, actually also coming into building the connectivity and logistics infrastructure, Thailand will be one of in the crossroads of all these new trade and commerce that's going to connect the entire region. I want to talk to you about your podcast, Asia Tech Podcast, and I, I know it's restarted recently. Can you tell me the backstory behind your podcast? The backstory. Yeah, so it, it has always appeared to me that tech press in Southeast Asia, again, is still in a nascent stage. And, you know, you look at the pioneers like Mohan and his team at E27 and also the Tech in Asia team. And, you know, those teams were actually way ahead of the curve when it came to building out media properties. But it's always occurred to me that while people do like to read, people like to listen. And I think that the idea for me was as an investor and as a mentor and advisor, it made sense for me to build a platform not just for Asia Tech Podcasts and for me personally and my partner Graham, who is amazing on so many different levels. But what we conceptualized was how can we get exposure and give exposure to companies in Southeast Asia to the rest of the world that they wouldn't get otherwise in a way that's more in depth. In other words, 
you can read like a four paragraph article in E27 or maybe a six paragraph article in Tech in Asia, but I want to have an hour long substantive conversation with a company founder or an angel investor or an institutional investor or talk about something that's, you know, really topical like the blockchain or ICOs. And I want to get somebody else's opinion and sort of mix in my opinion as well. And I thought the best way to do that was to build a podcast that did that. And I've done a lot of work actually on looking at podcast networks globally. And it appeared to me that there was room. We talked about this earlier, right? There was a market gap. And Graham and I decided that we wanted to try to go out and fill that market gap. So I think we've been, if you look at the growth of what we've done since he and I started sort of religiously doing this at the beginning of 2017, we've seen you know, very substantial growth in our ability to attract listeners. And I don't think that that's going to stop. So the idea was really to create a virtuous circle of, you know, Graham and I can talk and spend every week talking about a subject that's topical to that week or maybe the week prior to the week next, and then go out and talk to founders and investors and technical people, both locally and and outside the region, to try to find out what their impressions are here, again, to give a platform to help expose those companies to the rest of the world, right? So if you go, and the, the real genesis of this was when we were raising money for e-commerce. E-commerce is a business that it has no Sisyphean task. In other words, logistics is necessary, and all the things that go along with e-commerce facilitation are necessary. And the operators of that business are super experienced. And we went to, we didn't go, but we called you know, venture capitalists in California, and we said, do you want to invest in this business? And here are all the sort of criteria for the business, and they're all really powerful. And they, their answers were pretty uniform, and that was, we don't have enough visibility. That's a really important word, right? We don't have enough visibility on what's going on in Asia or Southeast Asia. And it just made me think, how can we get them? How can we be their eyes and ears? How can we present them that visibility? So you can do it on a one-off basis and say, hey, invest in this company or hey, take a look at that company. But the real way to do it is to build a relationship with them. And the best way to build that relationship is to just broadcast every week what your opinion is. So then people, you build gravitas, right? Because you're always out there saying what your opinion is. Sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong, but you're out there. And putting your opinion out in the public domain, I think takes a little bit of courage, maybe a lot of courage. But when you do that, then people don't need to ask you what you think about something. They can just listen to you talk about it. And that, to me, was the power of a podcast. And as you know, because you've been doing this for a lot longer, is that a podcast gives you frictionless distribution globally. And it gives it to you in a language that most of the world understands, which is English. And just the combination of all the factors that make a podcast really powerful meant that there was a market gap here that we wanted to fill. And we feel like we're doing that pretty well. Truth be told, one of the things I like about podcasting is actually that it's actually a win-win between media outlets that in the podcasting world. If you observe the US podcasting market, it's a very cross-promote culture where although there may be 20 podcasts on the same thing, but they help to cross-promote each other as compared to uh, typical text news media outlets where they're always competing for news. They're always trying to be the first to break embargoes as well and it's very zero sum so one of the things that i thought in podcasting that is that dynamic is very different it's more a win-win situation across different podcasts right and i think that and i think there's a reason for that you bring up a really good point so why is that well if you look at and let's just look at the united states because that's the place with which i would be most familiar the new york times right wanted to own the new york market 
and they competed with the New York Post and maybe the Wall Street Journal and Barron's. And they both, they wanted to fight each other and kill each other. But there was really no reason to create a partnership with the Los Angeles Times because it was 3,000 miles away in a different time zone and they had different local stories. And the media at the time was uniquely local, regional at best, right? That's why the Boston Globe could compete with the New York Times. And then there was a you know, Florida Sentinel and all these different papers. But as soon as the internet made distribution frictionless, it meant that the market for your news and your media was just global instantaneously. And what it means then is that the market is so huge that it actually helps me to help you, right? Because the more people understand the way that we are distributing the media that we're creating and the content that we're creating, it benefits all of us. And again, it gets back to the thing I talked about earlier. We're in a greenfield situation. We're not fighting. When I say you and I, I don't mean you and me, but I mean podcasters themselves are not competing over a small and getting smaller market. <laughs> They're just trying to build a market out of from scratch. And that behooves all of us to help everybody grow more and more. And I think we can see it happening globally. It's super powerful. And as you know, podcasts as a medium for distribution of just ideas is just growing insanely fast. And actually, I'm happy now with more tech podcasts coming online in Asia. It actually helps to grow the market. Then I don't have to worry about improving distribution because one of the challenges is about distribution. Yeah. And I mean, so like I said, it's very unlikely for somebody from the, from the Washington Post to be interviewed by somebody from the New York Times because they're just competing too heavily. But for you and for me and for Mike Michelini and everybody else that's out there like doing podcasting, the only thing we want to do is we want to educate people about what it really means, right? It's like, it's literally like back in the days of Marconi and the beginning of the radio. What's a radio, right? How does that work? How do I get that into my house without having it like connected directly to the studio? How does that bubble instantaneously? Just one last question before we get to the closing. How do you select the guests on your show and what is the audience that you're now trying to target? <laughs> so that's a super good question. Um, how do we select the guests that are on the show? Um, Graham and I are both voraciously curious and what we try to do is just interview people that we find interesting and whether that means you know the head of coca-cola or the head of general electric digital or somebody in the education technology space or a venture capitalist it's just we so Graham and I were invited last week to go to Shanghai to participate in a really large corporate event only because of the podcast. And the reason why we were noticed was because we'd interviewed some people sort of in the telco space and just somebody heard it because they were listening to that. So that ability to create connectivity through this is, you know, it's a really powerful tool. We don't do it on purpose, but we just try to select the guests for, for people that we just find interesting. Well, the audience we think is global, right? So anybody, our audience really is anybody tech interested that speaks English. But more, what we really want to do is we want to grow that audience outside the region because we believe that growing it inside the region is something that's going to happen more organically and more naturally, right? But if you look at, so in the old days, right, when I was working at Morgan Stanley and at Goldman Sachs in Tokyo, I was lucky because... We had offices in London and we had offices in New York and also in California. So it meant that a lot of the people that I talked to on a daily basis were outside of Japan. It means that I'm used to doing that and so is Graham. Graham is British, but he's traveled the whole world. You know, talking to people and building businesses, you, you have to understand that Graham also built a business in the mobile telco space, focusing on youth. So he's done that too and he's traveled all throughout Europe and, and Asia to do that. So for us, what we really want to do, it gets back to the question you asked before, is we want to give exposure, right, to companies here and people 
here that are kicking ass all day to people outside the region. What I really want, if I'm successful, then I have a large audience in California, in Boston, in Chicago, in London, and in Paris, and in Germany. And to be fair, if I look at some of the statistics associated with the podcasting that we're doing, that's what we're getting. And that's actually really powerful. That's probably about right, because 40% of my audience is actually from the US, and mainly they're the institution and the VC funds who are interested in Asia. So... Michael, thank you very much for coming on the show and it's been great having a chat with you not just on the Thailand startup ecosystem we talk about podcasting and so in closing, I have two questions so the first one, can you recommend a book or movie or podcast or documentary which you have seen that's interesting to you? Yeah, so for me, I think you have to read a book called Angel it's a book by Jason Calacanis, right? How I turned $100,000 into $100 million and there's no like given methodology. There's no magic bullet. There's no like sort of magic formula to be able to turn $100,000 into $100 million. But if you go through and you read sort of the anecdotes that he discusses in the book, what you really, what you'll, you'll find out some super interesting information. So I, I highly encourage everybody to, to go read that. From a movie perspective, unfortunately, I don't spend a lot of time watching movies. <laughs> so I don't really know... I don't really know what to say. I'm more likely to be reading something or listening to a podcast. And I love, so one of my favorite podcasts is something called the Accidental Tech Podcast, right? And it's been an inspiration for me to listen to those guys talk about it. But I think what they're, they're running into an issue because it's an Apple-focused podcast. And I think there's a little bit of sort of Apple information overload out there. But there's very interesting guys. And one of the one of the guys on the podcast, I, I just want to be clear about this, is a guy named Marco Arment. Marco was the first programming hire for Tumblr. So what does that mean? That means that he was one of the first people to work there. He, you know, he got stock as part of his compensation. And was Tumblr when Tumblr was sold to Yahoo for almost a billion dollars, he actually made out quite nicely. But even before that, he was one of the original iOS developers and he built a business around something called Instapaper. And so back in the old days, you didn't have connectivity everywhere you went. And he basically built something that scraped websites to create text only and allowed you to read things offline. And he built that business and he was making a living doing that as well. But these are very interesting people. And I like listening to them because their perspectives are different. And they're in the United States too. And to be fair, when I listen to other podcasts, and it's a little meta, but I then figure out who are the best advertisers in the podcasting space and I get to learn from their business and their business model as well. So that's what I like to do. I just have a book to recommend. It's called Numbers and Narratives. It's done by Azorov Damodaran, a professor from New York University and Stern School. One of the th interesting things about him is that he had a public debate with Bill Gurley from Benchmark about the valuation from Uber. And if you read this book, you really get a sense of how he's trying to shape a framework towards thinking about valuation, not just from the numbers point of view, but also from the storytelling point of view. So my last question to you, Michael, where do my audience find you? So you can find me at asiatechpodcast.com. You can find me on Facebook. We have our own page on Facebook too. I'm Asia Tech Podcast. I'm on Twitter at Michael Waits. That's M-I-C-H-A-E-L-W-A-I-T-Z-E. And also we run Twitter for our company too, Asia Tech Pod. You can find me at blcw.bernardleung.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, SoundCloud. 
and tuning of course and google play in the u.s market tweet to me recommend us on overcast or give me a star rating on Pocket Cast. and of course if you have any feedback just drop me a line whether it's twitter or email so once again michael thank you for coming on the show it's my pleasure thank you for having me